Good morning. Did you enjoy your extra hour of sleep last night? At the last service, I noticed some of you looking through the window rather perplexed that you did not enjoy the extra hour of sleep. But now you have to wait an entire year to be able to benefit from that extra hour. But we welcome you. If you're visiting here today, we all want to welcome you. Wherever you come from, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are in a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. We are today in John chapter 5, and we will conclude John chapter 5 as we look at verses 30 through 47. So open your Bibles, if you will, to John 5, and we will begin with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ beginning in verse 30. The Lord says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John. And he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me. That the Father has sent me. And the Father Himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. But you do not have His word abiding in you because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we praise your, praise your glorious name and thank you for your divine truth. We thank you for the written word and we ask that you would now prepare our hearts, open our minds to receive that which you would have for each one of us this morning. I pray for your church to be edified, to be built up in the truth of the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for those here this morning, if there's anyone, Lord, who are yet dead in trespasses and sins, I ask but by your grace... You would breathe spiritual life into them this day. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I enjoy rereading details of historical events as I'm reading the assassination count of Abraham Lincoln. I've been reminded that 
that was a night of bloody mayhem. I've been reminded that it was not only a night in which the president's life was taken by John Wilkes Booth, but there was also an attempt on Secretary of State William Seward's life by the hands of Lewis Powell. And then the murder of Seward's son who attempted to protect his father from Powell. As well as the effort to kill Sergeant George Robinson, all in all, the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state were the targets of a deranged group of men who were led by John Wilkes Booth. Booth, self-deceived, and believing that he could get away with murder, cried out as he faced death in a burning barn at Garrett's farm, stating, crying out, I quote, I have too great a soul to die like a criminal. End quote. I also read some details regarding the great luxury liner Titanic, of which we are all very familiar with, designed in her day and announced to be incapable of sinking. She hit an iceberg, ripped through nine watertight compartments. The pressure was so great that it burst through the rest of the ship, split it in two, taking to the bottom many people who were convinced that it couldn't happen. A classic case of misplaced assurance. We also witness a case of misplaced assurance in the verses that close the most wonderful fifth chapter of John's Gospel. However, here the tragedy is not simply the loss of life in this world, but rather the loss of life in the world to come. The Jewish leaders who confronted Jesus after the miraculous healing of a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda were not at all concerned with their own salvation. For they had possessed and committed to memory and trusted in their mere knowledge of the Word of God through the pen of Moses. They thought salvation came through knowledge. It became clear through the teaching of Christ that mere knowledge of the law of God is not adequate to save. The law is useful. But it cannot in itself save anyone. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, the law will actually condemn you. And under the religious system of the Pharisees, that which they had constructed, in addition to the law of God, the word of God, Jesus declared publicly that these hypocrites desired the praise that comes from men rather than that which comes from God. They sought the praise of men. They dressed to be recognized by men. They prayed aloud in public in order to be heard and seen by men making it obvious as they would give that they were giving a tenth of all they had. Under such a system, people had taken their minds off of God and began to compare themselves with one another. You'll always do well when you compare yourself with another person. Fallen humanity. You can look good. But this is where they miss the essence of the law was not to make oneself better than the next. James Montgomery Boyce, in his, in his commentary on John, quotes William Barclay, who says, and I quote, The point is not, am I as good as my neighbor? The point is, am I as good as God? 
The point is not, is my scholarship and is my piety greater than that of other people whom I could name? The point is, what do I look like to God? So long as we judge ourselves by human comparisons, there's plenty of room for self-satisfaction and self-satisfaction always kills faith. For faith is born of the sense of need. But when we compare ourselves with Jesus Christ and through Him, with God, we are humbled to the dust and then faith is born. For there is nothing left to do but to trust to the mercy of Almighty God. End quote. Now, only when a person compares himself with God can he possibly realize his great need for the redemption that is provided through the Savior who comes from God, lifting us up to God by grace alone. Jesus has been declaring his deity since verse 17 here in John chapter 5. And these religious hypocrites, due to their blindness, aren't buying it. To conclude this chapter, we will observe the Lord Jesus Christ as he now moves from bearing witness of himself as Lord of Lords to that of five additional witness accounts. The accusations began when Jesus healed a man by the pool of Bethesda, a man who was in a paralyzed condition for 38 years. He walked up to that man and he said, Rise, take up your bed, and what? Walk. The man rose up, he took his bed, and he walked. And he was confronted by the religious leaders of the day, inquiring as to why he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath and who made him well. And in verse 16, they sought to kill Jesus because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, he went on to declare equality with the Father, which is to say, I am God. In verse 18, therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus proceeds to make claims of equality with the Father, going as far as to say that all authority to judge the living and the dead has also been given to him as well. That all who are in the graves will hear his voice, some to eternal life, some to eternal damnation. Verse 28, John chapter 5, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And that leads us to our study, verse 30. Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, verses 30 and 31 are a summary of all that Christ has said up to this point in claiming equality with the Father. Jesus declares that he's not acting independently of the Father, but is indivisibly connected to the Father. Up to this point, Jesus has mostly spoken of himself in the third person, as the Son, or the Son of God, or the Son of Man. From this point on, he uses the first person with the emphatic I. 
Jesus said his judgment is just. His judgment is righteous. He's always in perfect communion with the Father and his perfect obedience means that his judgment is divine. And the reason that he exercises this divine judgment is that he does not seek his own will, but rather the will of the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. In John 8, 28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but He has sent me. So Jesus is saying in essence here, as the Father shows me the things to do, I do them. Therefore, you cannot accuse me of blasphemy without accusing the Father. Verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. When Jesus says this, he does not mean that if he says anything about himself, it must be false. He does not mean that. Because elsewhere, Jesus said, John eight fourteen, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. So when he declares in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true, he speaks hypothetically. If I bear witness of myself means if I were to wear, bear witness independently of the Father in such a manner, then my witness would not be true. If Christ were to claim anything or proclaim anything about himself outside of the Word of God, outside of the ordained will of the Father, then his witness would not be true. But that was impossible. Why? Because Jesus said in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. The very essence and nature of God the Father is identical with the essence and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ as is identical with the essence and nature of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, believer. So in other words, Jesus is saying, in your opinion, if I'm the only one to testify about who I am, then it's not going to be good enough for you. Now, under Jewish law, the self-testimony of any person was not to be accepted in court. There had to be two or three witnesses. That was the law of the Jews. Deuteronomy 19.15, Deuteronomy 17.6, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So here, the word of a mere man does need confirmation, but not so of God the Son. To suggest that the witness of Jesus Christ must be approved by the testimony of human beings would be extremely dishonoring to him. But nonetheless, he subjects himself to the law. Because in their hardness, they were not going to believe on him. So, it would require more witnesses. So instead of two or three witnesses, Jesus made claim of five. And they're outlined in your bulletin. Five. And this will set the stage for verses 32 to 47. Jesus goes on to fo call five different sources of testimony to bear witness to that which he has already claimed about himself, the fact that he is indeed God in the flesh. 
The five witnesses are as follows. First witness is John the Baptist. Witness number two are the very works of Christ themselves. The third witness is that of the Father. The fourth is the witness of the living scriptures. And fifth is the witness of Moses. Now, Jesus claimed that there are valid witnesses who support his claim of deity in verses 30 to 47. And the word witness is a key word in the Gospel of John. It's used 27 times in this Gospel. Now, if you recall, in our opening verses of John 1, in the orientation of this Gospel, you understand that John's purpose in writing the Gospel is to declare the very deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that he is God. They weren't receiving it. So he called in five indispensable witnesses. And we're going to begin with the first witness, and that is that of John the Baptist. The witness of John the Baptist, beginning in verse 33 through 35. We'll come back to verse 32 in a bit. Jesus said, You have sent to John, and he's borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. First witness, the Baptist. John the Baptist is the religious leader, is the man that the religious leaders interrogated back in John chapter 1 verse 19. If you remember, John preceded Jesus' public ministry. He was called to bear witness and identify Jesus as the Son of God, the Lamb of God. In John, as Isaiah 40 verse 3 said, was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It was John's role, that was John's call. Before the foundation of the earth, it was ordained that John the Baptist would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness as prophesied by Isaiah. And John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. From the womb. Is God sovereign in salvation? You better believe it. He was a man filled from the womb. John prepared the way for Messiah. He worked alongside of him. He preached repentance and he directed his followers to follow Christ. John said, I must decrease and he must what? Increase. Very short ministry. Wasn't all that long. Very effective. Very effective. And although his ministry was enjoyed by the masses, it was enjoyed but for a short period of time. Perhaps his ministry was simply indulged for a bit, because at the end we know John was finally rejected. It was John who declared that Jesus was Lord in John chapter 1, verse 23. John cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth, chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 36. And finally, Behold the Son of God, chapter 1, verse 34. And although John was sent by God to bear witness of Jesus Christ, Jesus said in verse 34, Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Now, although everything John the Baptist said about Jesus was true, Jesus himself did not depend on human testimony to establish who he was. He didn't need John the Baptist any more than he needs you or any more than he needs me, that's for sure. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, regardless of what we say, regardless of what we think, regardless of the way we live. Amen? Amen? 
regardless of human testimony, Jesus is God Almighty. The Son of God. But that does not negate the fact that John was a radiant witness of and for Jesus Christ. God sent his messenger John before his son to prepare the way for him. This ministry was to stir men up. To stir them up. To produce in them a sense of their deep need for God. He sent to John in chapter 1 verse 19 to investigate him. Jesus said, it's for this purpose that you may be saved. It's by the testimony of this man. The testimony unto what? Unto truth. The testimony unto truth. Now, human testimony is very important. Amen? Human testimony is important. We are therefore commanded. We're called to walk worthy in a manner. Walk worthy of our position in Christ. Our position is perfect. And we're called to live our lives in a manner that rightly reflect such a position in Christ. Justification by faith alone. So, human testimony is very important, but theoretically it's very weak. In other words, regardless of what man thinks or does in response to Jesus Christ, is irrelevant irrelevant to who he is. You know, a lot of people will say, well, I don't go to church, uh, you know, I don't partake in the church, I, I don't go listen to the word because there's so many what in church? So many hypocrites. And we respond to them by, come on in, there's room for more, right? So many will give the excuse of not submitting to Christ by blaming hypocrites in the church. But if not one soul came to faith in Jesus Christ, he would still be the Son of God. Jesus is God, whether you've experienced him or not. So experience alone is is no great truth in providing evidences to the deity of Jesus Christ. Many people have all kinds of experiences. If you've ever taken drugs in your life, you've experienced some stuff. If you've ever been around wackos who are on drugs, you've seen them experience some stuff. If you sit and fold your legs and your arms and meditate on your navel long enough, you may experience something. In religion, you can experience certain things. But we don't judge truth based solely on experience, do we? So why should we bear witness of God's transforming work in our lives? Why is it important? If theoretically it's weak. And the reason is, because practically speaking, having been transformed by the truth in God's grace, it's probably the most effective rather, testimony of the power and the life of Christ in and through the believer. When people know of your faith, when they cry out with a desperate plea for hope and purpose, theoretically the experience you've had by the grace of God is of no great value, but experientially, it's a powerful tool of intrinsic value that God happens to use by grace for the glory of God. And it hits people right where they live. Your testimony of God's grace in your life and through your life. So Jesus is saying the witness of John and his pointing to me as the Lamb of God was not to remind me of who I am. Jesus does not need anyone's testimony to remind him of who he is. Amen? No. This is to bear witness of me to you, religious hypocrites. 
he was saying to them. The purpose of which? That you might be saved. The saving grace of God was standing before them. And in their hardness, they didn't believe who he claimed to be. That's why Jesus says here, I do not need the testimony of man to prove who I am. But practically speaking, it happens to reach the hearts of people. He's telling about John the Baptist, it was for their sake. They investigated him. They saw the, the lamp burning in the wilderness. They heard the proclamation of the coming one. You know, God may very well use your testimony. The testimony of His grace in and through your life. Bringing other people to faith. Drawing people near to Himself. And the question is, what kind of witness are you? If you are in Christ, or you profess to be in Christ, what kind of witness are you? Could Jesus say of you, you know, insert your name here, that you bear witness of his truth? You know, what proceeds from your mouth Monday through Saturday? It's easy to come in here with a Sunday smile, hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen, praise Jesus. That's easy. But who, who am I Monday through Saturday? Do I bear witness? Am I a lamp that shines as John shined? Being a Christ follower, you've heard it asked... If you were arrested and accused of being a follower of Jesus Christ, in other words, accused of being a true biblical Christian, would there be an, enough evidence against you to convict you of being a true Christian? If the court were to subpoena your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your fellow classmates, would there be enough evidence against you to convict you of being a true child of God? A little Christ. Because notice here, Jesus actually gives tribute to John as a shining lamp. Verse 35, He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in His light. A burning and shining lamp for Christ. He shined so bright that they came out to see what was going on. Preaching repentance. Lamp is luknos, which means a portable lamp or a little lamp. That's who John was. Jesus was the phos from where we get phosphorescent or, or phosphorus. That's what Christ is. He's the light. John was the lamp. Christ is the light. The question, are you the lamp? Am I the lamp? Monday through Saturday. We come here to take in the oil. Amen? the oil of the Word, to go out and illumine the truth of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sinner saved by grace. So John was not the false, the light, but rather the luknos, the little lamp, who came to bear witness of the false or the light, Jesus Christ. John 1, verse 7, This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. We're called to be such lights, such lamps, brothers and sisters, bearing witness of the true light source. And that lamp of John burned so brightly in the wilderness that the Pharisees and the religious Jews of the day fled 
They ran out to him, just like moths are attracted to the lamp on your front porch. They were drawn to it. Israel hadn't had a prophet in 400 years. And here was a weird dude with weird hair and weird clothes with a crazy diet preaching repentance. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. And Jesus said, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his life. For a time. Very for, uh, for a very short season, they basked in the light of the lamp that came off of John the Baptist. Until it started to burn. It started to burn. That's what the Word of God does. It's a sword and it cuts and it divides and it gets down to the crevices and it lays open the crevices of the heart. What's really going on inside. You know, sometimes Christians will sit under superficial teaching. They'll sit in a church that's very entertainment-oriented. You've got a funny man doing shtick up at the, up at the pulpit. And, and, you know, if they're true Christians, they're going to get tired of that for, after a while. It's like eating junk food. Amen? Come on now. It's like eating junk food. So your body starts going to waste. You don't grow. You stop growing. So they seek out some nutrition. Meat of the Word. So they'll seek out expositional teaching. Verse by verse teaching. This is what it says. This is what it means by what it says. Because they want to grow. Now, they'll seek it out. And unless they just grow to the next level, pretty soon, that type of heat... That type of truth is going to burn. It's going to burn you, man. It's going to burn your pride. It's going to sizzle your pride to death. Amen? That's what the truth of the Word of God does. If you think you're going to, supposed to walk out of church every week, you know, just hopping and skipping and going, whoo, right? We're children of God being conformed into the image of Christ, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you're going to get beat up. Come on now. He calls his church to be holy. In response to a burning lamp that reflects the true light, many times people who sit under that teaching, they want to bash the lantern. The guy preaching. The Christian proclaiming truth. They become hostile towards you, but the real hostility, the true hostility, is hostility against Jesus Christ, the light. Soon, you know, by this time here in chapter 5, and that which is going on here that we're studying, John's no longer preaching. He's in prison. He, he's awaiting his head to be cut off and to delivered on a plate, on a platter to Herod. That was the end of his ministry. Prior to the end of his ministry, he was in jail. You know, he, he felt like he was sitting on his hands. He sent his disciples, you know, go ask Jesus, you know, is he the one to come or would he seek another? You know, Jesus did not go to him, oh, let me, let me, go, let me go pat John on the back. You know what he did? He, he went... He sent his disciples back with Scripture. The words of Isaiah the prophet. Everything was going just as planned, John. Just as planned. It was the Word of God. Anytime God's lamp burns brightly with the oil of the Word, there'll either be repentance and belief or continual unbelief, eventually followed by hostility. And if someone can sit under the burning lamp of truth in a condition of unbelief, a condition of unrepentance, man, you're going to become hardened in a very dangerous place if you sit under sound teaching of the Word of God and you're unconverted. 
Cry out to God for His mercy to soften your heart and bring you to true saving faith. Very, very, very dangerous place to be. That's where these hypocrites were. Jesus is saying here, how could you think so much about John and neglect what he taught? He was teaching about me, the fulfillment of all things. Everything that you've given your life to study, that's me. So, witness number one was John the Baptist. That leads us to witness number two, the works of Christ. Verse 36, but I have a greater witness witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. The second second witness were the works of Christ. Deeds that revealed His divine nature. Not simply powerful miracles, but rather signs which pointed to His valid claims of being the very Son of God, the very Son of Man. Validating who He was. Jesus' works here marked him as superhuman, illuminating his divine nature. Jesus never performed miracles in his ministry simply to draw attention to himself, ever. But they were for a greater purpose, to validate his claims of deity. You remember in, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus' fame went out throughout the land. You remember that? Went out through... Uh, Judea, Samaria, all throughout Galilee, and Decapolis, which is a region of ten cities. His fame went out throughout the land. Jesus didn't move himself forward. He actually withdrew. He took his disciples up on a mountain. He sat down and he taught them and he said to them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In other words, blessed are those who've come to the end of themselves. Blessed are those who can, they they reach out to God as a shameful beggar, knowing that they have nothing to offer God. That's being poor in spirit. Those are the first recorded teaching words out of the Lord Jesus Christ when his fame went out throughout the land. Again, the emphatic I here, the words of the Lord, stresses separation from people. Here we see the majesty of Christ, his works. Now as great as John was, and as great as the Lord's acknowledgement of John was, he said, I have a testimony that is much weightier than John the Baptist. Jesus even said to John the Baptist, of all men born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. But even as great as John the Baptist is, my works are weightier in testifying of who I am. Remember Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 2? He said, Rabbi, he says to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. John's gospel lists seven great works of Christ. You remember this in John chapter 2, he turned water to wine. He he goes on to heal the official's son. He heals the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. He'll go on, as we'll read in the coming weeks, to feed the multitudes. He walks on water. He cures a blind man in John chapter 9, finally raising Lazarus from the dead. Let alone himself after his death. 
These miracles are called sign miracles because they point to something beyond themselves. See, a sign points you to something. If you drive down the road here, there's a sign that will point you to Garnett Avenue or Street. What is it? Whatever. Garnett. It'll take you to the beach. You don't go jump on that sign and embrace it going, yes, I've made it to Garnett. That's a sign that points you to something greater than the sign. These miracles were a sign that pointed to something greater than the sign themselves, and it was to the deity of Jesus Christ, the one performing the signs. He's God. You know, there's this idea today of these crazy wacko guys on the TV who claim to have the same power as Jesus Christ. You know what that is? That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. Jesus said greater works than these you will do, not greater in power. Greater in extension for the kingdom with the gospel through his church. Crazy lunatics on there. So many people that follow him too. That's what's sad. Go proclaim these divine truths to your friends who are caught up in all that craziness. Amen? We need to be lights. We need to get people straight, straightened up by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit in their theology. Theology proper. God first. Amen? Christ first. Not a theo theology built around man and appeasing man. No. A theology built upon glorifying Jesus Christ. They attested that he was who he claimed to be. The Son of Man. The Son of God. God incarnate. Equal in power to the Father. Now remember, Jesus set, a, set aside his attributes, restricting himself, submitting himself to the will of the Father. Only using the attributes in which the Father gave him to do a particular moment in time. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. And a person would have to be blind not to see such works. Such power. But that is precisely what a man is outside of the saving grace of God. Because works reveal his deity. Witness number three. Witness of the Father. Back to verse 32. It says, There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. And then verse 37 and the Father Himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His form, but you do not have His word abiding in you, because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. So the thought is not that God necessarily provides an audible voice, a testimony, unless what John has in mind here is the baptism of Jesus, Matthew chapter 3, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now to a Jew, the voice from heaven would have meant the approval of God. I mean, this supernatural event, the, the baptism of Jesus seem to have little effect on the multitude. I mean, that's amazing what took place there. But we don't hear much about it afterward. But here I believe that Jesus may be pointing to the inward presence of God that aims at the truth of who Christ is. Jesus is saying, in essence, you know nothing about God because you don't know me. 
This witness is not an external witness. It's the internal. And only those who love Christ experience it. Only those who've been graced by God experience it. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Who gives the church to the, bro- to the, to the groom? God the Father. Now, unlike Moses, who back in Exodus 33.11 heard God's voice, the Jews do not hear Jesus who speaks the very words of God. In John 3, verse 34, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. The Jews did not hear God's voice in Christ. Nor, verse 37, have they seen his form. Since Jesus is the very manifestation of God, the Jews do not see God in Christ. They were blind. John 1.18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has what? He's declared Him. Jesus Christ has declared the Father. He's declaring the Father to these religious hypocrites. But Jesus said, You do not have His Word abiding in you because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. You know how many people claim to know God? And yet they don't believe in all the truths of Scripture regarding Jesus Christ, that He's the only way. There's people who claim to be Christian who say, yeah, Jesus is the way for me, but He's not necessarily the way for other people. Do you know that if you profess to be a Christian and you believe anything contrary to what Scripture declares about Jesus Christ, that He is the only way and not simply a spoke to a greater hub known as God the Father, that you're not a Christian? Second John 9. Jot that down. Second John 9. Very important if you're deceived here this morning. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. You believe there's another way to Jesus Christ or another way to God the Father and that Jesus Christ is not the only way? said this before. Oh, He's the way for me but not for my uncle or friend or whatever. I'll tell you what, you better examine yourself. Because the Bible says, unless you adhere to those truths, you don't have the Father either. A lot of danger today. I have a bigger burden for those in the church today who profess Christ, who really don't know Christ, than actually the full-on pagans out there. We already know they don't know Christ, but there's so many people deceived today. Jesus said, you do not have His Word abiding in you because whom He sent you do not believe. Unlike the psalmist of Psalm 119 verse 11 who says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. The Jews had no desire for Christ who is the very Word of God. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent among us. He became a human being. So it's the internal voice of God who confirms who Christ is and who's really Christ's. The internal voice of God declares who Christ is and to those who are in Christ, He affirms that you're in Christ, if you're in Christ. 
Romans 8.16 For the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are what? Children of God. But these Jews wouldn't know that because they didn't believe in Him. 1 John 5.9 If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is what? Is greater. For this is the witness of God which He has testified of His Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in Himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. Who gives testimony of his son? He does. So there we have the testimony of the Father. We have John the Baptist. On through the Father. The works of Christ were the second. Fourthly, we have the witness of the living scriptures. Verse 39 and 40. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of, of me. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, this here is, is indicative. He's, he's making a statement here. He's not urging them to go search the scriptures. He's not saying, you, go search the scriptures. He's, he's rather saying that as you search the scriptures, you think you have life. These were some dogmatic brothers, these Pharisees. They knew the Scripture. They searched the Scripture. They extracted the deepest truths from the Scripture. They spent their lives, they pasted them to their forehead, tied them to their wrists. They would pour over the Scriptures. They would attempt to exhaust the truths of Scripture. The irony is that in their learning, they missed the chief subject of the Old Testament revelation, the one who was standing before their very eyes, who they had on trial, so they thought. What they don't understand is that the Scriptures testify of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They missed Him from the beginning. When Jesus was born... If you remember, wise men came from the east. The magi came. It wasn't three little dudes on camels, okay? This was a group of men, and they would have had a very large entourage with them. This would have been very intimidating for Herod to look out from his window and see these cats coming. Okay? It rattled him. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 4, and what he did is he goes out, tripping out like this, he gathers all of his scholars. And when he gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is what? Written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They missed him in the beginning and they missed him in the end. Remember after the death of Christ, his resurrection, there's two disciples that are on their road to Emmaus. Jesus meets them. They don't recognize him. Basically, Jesus says, hey, what is this that you talk about among yourselves? Do you not know? Are you the only person in the world that does not know about Jesus Christ and all that he suffered at the hands of the Jews? Jesus goes on. He expounds the truth of Scripture regarding himself to these two. And in Luke 24, 44, he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. The Pharisees missed him in the beginning. 
They missed him during his earthly ministry and they missed him in the end. But oh, they knew the scriptures. They missed the fulfillment of the scriptures. They missed the substance, the essence of all truth, Christ. So beloved, in the searching of scripture, you better be careful to find Jesus Christ in the text. Not things about him. Things of his person, his deity, and your relationship to him. Your relationship to him. Meaning that Jesus is Lord God Almighty. And to believe in him, to profess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord, is to follow him, is to obey him by the grace of God. Amen? Because if you don't, your search is in vain. Their search was in vain. And any profession of faith is a sham. Verse 40, But you're not willing to come to me that you may have what? Life. So, Jesus rebukes these Jews for their inconsistency of diligent study, all the while rejecting his claims. You know how many people say, I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus literally died on the cross, and I believe he raised the third day. And they will be the ones in which Jesus will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Although they'll cry out, Lord, Lord, didn't we not do all these wonderful things in your name? He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice what? Iniquity or lawlessness. There was no signs of my redeeming work and power in you and through you. You knew about me, but you didn't know me. Because I didn't know you. Amazing how many people study the Bible. They're not saved. There's a homosexual church, and I think it's in Arkansas, I saw a video on this, which is an oxymoron, by the way. Anyone who's a practicing thief, practicing liar, practicing drunkard, practicing homosexual, practicing heterosexual, who's fornicating, practicing adulterer, if they profess Christ with their mouth, Paul says you're deceived. For neither homosexuals, nor the effeminate, nor murderers, nor revilers, nor drunkards will what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Because what? Such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed, and you were cleansed, and you were justified, and you were sanctified by the work of Christ. But there's this group. It's a church that's full of homosexuals, practicing homosexuals. Now, the true church is filled with former drunks, lusters, fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals. Okay, no, key word, former. Okay, saved by grace, repentant. What these blasphemers do is they twist scripture. And I heard a lady say with her own mouth on camera that King David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship as did J Jesus and the beloved disciple John. It's blasphemy. And that type of blasphemy only creates deeper, greater suffering in the misery of hell. And if you know anyone that, that adheres to that type of wretched thinking, if you love them, you will go to them with the truth. Amen? If you really love family members who are in such a lifestyle, you will go to them with the truth. Do not pander to them. You don't slap them on the back and say, oh, we're just one big happy family. Come on now, somebody. No. 
Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a different Christ. It is not the Christ of the Bible. This book, this is nothing but paper and ink apart from the divine work of the Holy Spirit in one's life. It's a living active word of God. You can know it, you can quote it, and if you don't have the Spirit of God that's regenerated you, caused you to be born again, a true child of God, it's paper and ink. You'll die full of knowledge of it. Right into the deepest pit of hell. Because Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day, greater will your condemnation, what? Be. Why? Because they were teachers of the law. They knew it. They taught it. They misled people. Who became, their proselytes became worse children of hell than them, Jesus said. You know, the prayer of Paul for these self-righteous Israelites, of what Brett, Brett read in the opening of the service this morning, very authoritatively, Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for, to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to what? Knowledge. Not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Finally, the last witness is the witness of Moses. Now, this last witness is a witness of condemnation. This is an indictment against in the outcome of superficial belief. In verses 41 to 47, as we wrap up here. Now, from verse 17 up to this point, Jesus has responded to the Pharisees' accusation as a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer with a dissertation as to his deity. So verses 17 to 47 in John chapter 5 is a discourse from Christ to these hypocrites regarding his deity, the fact that he is God in the flesh. Now, although these Jews think that they have Jesus on trial... In all actuality, they're the ones being charged is Jesus is now going to turn the tables. So he moves from defense to prosecution. Verse 41, I do not receive honor from men. Jesus does not need or desire hypocritical worship of unredeemed mankind. The people who claim to embrace Jesus Christ, the Christian faith, the truths of Scripture, all the while refusing the message He came to bring, cannot rightly honor God. It's impossible. In other words, we, if, to stand in agreement with the person, the work, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and yet refuse to submit to His authority and Lordship through loving obedience, is sheer hypocrisy. That's what they were. This is what Jesus is confronting here. If you're not willing, if a person's not willing to die of self, accept Christ by way of repentance, believe unto obedience, he does not want your superficial worship. I do not receive honor from men, he said. Because that kind of honor from men is no honor at all. It's outward. It's phony. 
It's a facade of religiosity. That's what he's confronting here. They're on trial. Verse 42, But I know you, that you do not have the love of God. Where? In you. In you. It's not in you, he says. The expression here, I know you, implies a settled state of knowledge based on past experience. Now many of you will recall this. You remember, this takes us back to John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Jesus goes in, he cleanses the temple. He turns the place upside down. It's during the Passover feast. Remember that? Jesus did many miracles there. In chapter 2, verse 23, it says, During the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But... Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Their belief was superficial. Their belief was outward. It was external. They wanted to see a circus show. Who wouldn't want to see a leper healed? Who would not want to see a blind man or woman healed? Who would not want to see someone with a withered hand? Jesus said, stretch out your hand. And just, it comes out. It became a freak show for them. A circus act. Jesus would not entrust himself to those who responded solely on the basis of external circumstances. Such as miracles. Jonathan Edwards says, and I quote, the heart of the sinner is as devoid of love for God as a corpse is of a beating heart. End quote. A.W. Pink, he says, and I quote, You may have a mild temper, an, amio- an amiable disposition, a reputation for kindness and generosity, but if you have never been born again, you have no more real love in your heart for God than Judas had for the Savior. End quote. Ooh, come on, somebody. The very things in which God demands of His children is love. To worship in spirit and truth. As Jesus said in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Obedience to his word validates our love for him. Now he's not calling us to, okay, there's the commandments. We have to strive. I'm a Christian, so I can't do that. I'm a Christian, so I have to do that. Oh, wait a minute, let me go check. Hold on. I can't do no, I can't do that. I'm just a Christian. No, look. It's the law of God written in the heart by the resident power of the Holy Spirit. And when a Christian is saved by grace, the Holy Spirit takes residence there, having birthed in him new life. There's a desire now to abide in Christ and have Christ abide in you. And when we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us, what, may, what is made full? Joy. A desire to live out the truth of Scripture written in the heart. So you no longer have to attempt to strive in upholding the law. It just flows out of you because it is now fruit of the... Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, of which there is no law. We can only love God. You can only love God because He loved you, what? First. First John 
We love him because he first loved us. Verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Josephus writes, first century historian, Josephus writes about numerous men who came in their own name proclaiming Messiahship prior to 70 AD. Amazing. And they just globbed on to these individuals. Started following them around. It amazes me how easily people are swayed by idols of our age. Man worshippers. Hollywood. The devil has a grip on America, boy, through Hollywood, through your TV screen, through music, entertainment, so on. That's normal for the world to live through, to live vicariously through someone, amen? Vicarious existence is a waste of time. Live vicariously through someone, live through Christ. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. How easily, though, the professing church is won over by these intruders. It's amazing to me. From antichrist throughout time to Hollywood heroes of our day. Verse 44. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from only God? They looked and were looking for the applause of men. You know, backslapping is still the curse of the church today. If you're serving to be patted on the back, now encouragement's great. Please encourage one another. This is a great church. This is a church that's rich in fellowship. I love this church. or I wouldn't be standing here. I love you guys. I love this body. I love what God has done through this body. I love what He's doing in a very short period of time. It's amazing grace. And there's such a a unity of fellowship, a desire for the truth, a desire to be with one another, to edify one another, to build one another up. That's what edify means. It means to build a house. You build up. But many today in the church are looking for the applause of men. You have teachers who have itching ears, who go out to scratch other people's ears, right? They want to tickle people's ears with entertainment and, like I said, shtick and all this other nonsense. Evangelical slapstick, as John Piper calls it. They love to compliment one another rather than expound the truth of the living God. And then they, like the people of John 12, 43, loved the praise of men 